And many of them share very similar ethics and very similar moralities, though there are, there are also some significant differences. Um, however, all the religions of the world are not basically the same in this regard. Jesus Christ is utterly unique on the face of the earth. He is not like Moses. He is not like Buddha. He is not like Muhammad. I have my heroes, and you probably have your heroes. I'm a sports fan, so I've got my heroes in the sports world. Uh, a couple, about a year ago, the movie 42 came out, and there's a movie about Jackie Robinson. An incredible man, an incredible man of courage and, and conviction and, and, uh, and, and, a, and a real hero. And, and there are heroes in the sports world. Um, and so, yeah, I've got, you know, I've got heroes. I've got heroes in the political world. Uh, I love just reading the quotes of Winston Churchill. He is, he is like one of, he, listen, Winston Churchill was not a godly man. Uh, he believed in God, but he wasn't, he wasn't, he wasn't your, I mean, he, he, he was a drinker and a smoker and a, just a, a fierce political uh, adversary, if you chose to be uh, on, the, on the wrong side of him. But I'll tell you what, in many ways, when this world needed a man like Winston Churchill, he was God's man for that hour. He really was. Abraham Lincoln, another one of my uh, political heroes. I love Abraham Lincoln, a man of courage and conviction. Uh, and so I've got heroes. I've got religious heroes, uh, uh, John Wesley, C.S. Lewis, um, Contemporary heroes like John Wimber and uh, Bill Johnson, people that I admire and respect. So we, we've got heroes. But Jesus is more than a hero. He is utterly unique in the history of the world. I was a religious studies major in college. I got my degree in religious studies. I've studied religious leaders. And all religious leaders basically all have some kind of path, and they instruct their followers to follow this path. Do what I say. Moses has got the Ten Commandments. Uh, the Prince Buddha, Siddhartha, has got the, eight, the, the, the eightfold path. Uh, Muhammad has the Koran. Follow the Koran. Jesus comes and he says something completely unique in the history of religious leaders. He says, follow me. Now, there's only one other type of person who says that. Cult leaders. Nutcases. And I think in, in mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis is exactly right when he says, listen, Jesus is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. He is either a deceiving devil trying to get people to follow a wrong path. He's just a nut, like you know, some of the nuts that have crossed our paths over the years and, and made their ways onto the headlines through tragedies. Or in fact, he is who he said he is. The King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is the incredible, as incredible as it seems, that the God who, who threw tr you know, billions and trillions of stars and galaxies into the universe somehow entered a woman's womb, became a man, and walked among us, while at the same time, God the Father in heaven, God the Son, one but two. Oh, and then the Holy Spirit comes upon him, one but three. It's a mystery. And it's like no other religion in the world. And dear ones, it is not something to be taken moderately. If it's true, it's the most important truth in our lives. It's foundational. And if it's false, it's something to be discarded completely and to get on with your life. The idea of Jesus, oh, he was a good prophet and a wonderful moral teacher, no, nah, it doesn't fit 
with the accounts. Wonderful moral teachers aren't wrong on the central message of their teaching. And Jesus' central message was not love God, love your neighbor. He was just reiterating the message of Moses when he said that. His central message was, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so people, when they are confronted with Jesus, have different reactions to Jesus. And I want to read to you some of the reactions to Jesus after the raising of Lazarus from the dead. John chapter 11, verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. So Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And the most logical, the most common, the most reasonable reaction to that is to believe in him. Listen, that's impressive. I've been with dead people. I've been to funeral parlors. I've been to hospitals right after people died. And here's one thing. I'm not, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a, I'm not a doctor. But, but, you know, I'm not stupid either. Dead people are dead. They're unresponsive. All right? They're, they're dead. They're gone. And Jesus performed many incredible healings and miracles, but the resurrection of the dead, that's impressive. And people are astonished, and people believe in him. And notice that his enemies don't deny the miracle. They affirm the miracle. He's performing many signs and wonders. We've got to stop him. But the most logical response to the power of God is belief. And yet, for many, that's not the first thing that comes to mind. For those of us in, in our culture, the first thing that comes to mind when claims of miraculous hit our ears is what? Skepticism. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Oh, especially if it happened through some tele television evangelist. Then we know, all that's for money, all that's for show. That can't be from God. And especially if it happened in an atmosphere where there was high levels of emotion. Oh, that's a psychosomatic healing. I'm sorry, Nick, your heart's still bad. That was just a psychosomatic healing you got five years ago when you were on your deathbed and you're still alive and with us. 
Because that night, Winnie didn't preach a good sermon, so it can't, you couldn't have had a healing with a, with a bad sermon, right? Of course you could. Uh, I was reading a book by Michael Harper, and Michael Harper is, uh, I believe he's Greek Orthodox now. He was an Anglican, uh, but he, he, he changed ships. Um, um, so anyway, he's very, very high church, very proper. But he, but, but he wrote a book on the healings of Jesus, and he talks about his journey into believing modern-day healings. And he said he went to a Catholic, one of, the, one of the steps in his journey, he went to a Catherine Coleman conference. Anybody ever remember, remember Catherine Coleman? The white dress, the flowing thing, and she kind of talked silly and was on her tippy toes. And she is, you know, everything that I didn't like back then, she was. It, it just seemed like a show. And so Michael Harper, university educated, master's degree in theology, he's studying the healings of Jesus and the modern healing movement. He goes to a Catherine Coleman conference, and he's just offended by the whole thing. It's just the lights and the show and everything. He's just, he's just put off. And Catherine Coleman gets up and says, there's a young man here who's, whose lungs were injured in a fire, and he developed emphysema, and God is healing him now. And a couple rows back, this young man stood up and said, it's me, and he began to run. And she said, run up and down. He began to run up and down the aisle, and Harper was offended. He was just offended by all this. He thought, oh, that was a setup. You know, that, she had that guy out there, et cetera, et cetera. And he turned to the guy next to him. He said, what do you think about this? And the guy turned to him, and he saw his eyes were moist with tears. And the guy said, that's my son. And everything she said is true. His lungs were damaged in a fire, and he's developed respiratory problems to the degree he, can't, he can hardly walk, let alone run. He hasn't done anything like that in years. I was at a uh, church, and I was, I was speaking on stuff like this. And I was, my job, that my assignment that morning was to encourage this church to be less skeptical and more full of faith to believe God for the impossible, to believe God for miracles. And as, as that's my job description, uh, uh, Ben Humble's younger brother, Christian Humble, comes to me, and he's all excited. He says, Kevin, I just heard this report on television about a guy who had prayer claws. And he, was, and he sent out the prayer claws. He anointed these prayer claws to people, and he sent out these prayer claws, and there was a man whose limb had been amputated, and he laid the prayer cloth on his amputated limb, and it grew back. And the first thing that I said when he... That, went into my mind, I didn't say it to him, was, yeah, right. I wonder how much that televised evangelist got for that prayer cloth. Now, dear ones, I don't know whether that story's true or not. But here's what I know. The minute I said that, the Holy Spirit convicted me. He said, why do you choose to be skeptical first? If you notice in the Gospels, Jesus never gets on his disciples. He never criticizes his disciples for being gullible. He criticizes them often for what? Lack of faith. Little faith. Could it be? Now, I'm not saying that every claim, everything everybody says is true. And I'm not saying there's not a place for discernment and checking things out. But I am saying, back then and now, human reaction is to disbelieve first. And Jesus says, unless you're like a little child... You cannot enter the kingdom of God. Little children believe. You tell a child that there's a, red, there's, a, there's a guy in a red suit, and every December 24th, he goes around the world and comes down chimneys and hands out presents to kids. They have, cool, 
And he's at, the, he's at the mall at Silverdale today, and you can sit on his lap and tell him what you want within reason. And, he'll, and they'll believe. And they're crushed at seven or eight years old when the rumor starts getting out at school that it's not true. And one of, one of the dangers of that is then, right, it, well, that's not true. Jesus is just another Santa Claus story, right? No. Lest you be like a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Some believed. Lazarus, come forth. He came forth. People turned to each other. That's good. That's a miracle. Who is this man? Which is a great question to ask. That he calls the dead to life. Who is this man? But then, there's the opposition. And whenever Jesus is revealed in power, there is opposition. Signs and wonders lead are evangelistic in nature. They lead people to believe. Christian people, people, listen, people moan and groan. I, 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 I see this on Facebook all the time. People moan and groan. Oh, the church is going through tough times. Oh, the church is really struggling. In America, that's true. The Pacific Northwest, it's really true. I get it. Listen, I'm trying to be a church planter in a region where I didn't know anybody. In the eighth most unchurched county in the United States. In a time and period in American history where people are down on the church like never before. I get it. But dear ones, that's a small perspective. The world isn't all Bremerton. All across the world, the gospel, this gospel we proclaim is spreading like wildfire. It's out, it, the conversion rate is outstripping the birth rate, which means year after year after year, there is a higher percentage of believing, born again, yes, I say yes to Jesus, Christians in the world. Every year. Africa and Asia and South, uh, Southeast Asia, South America, all over the world this gospel is spreading. It can no longer be scorned as North American, uh, North American and European white man's religion. It never was that, but it certainly isn't that now. And everywhere that it's spreading, it's spreading behind the, behind the works of signs and wonders and miracles. God has not stopped being God. Jesus has not stopped being Jesus. And yet, you've got opposition. The devil does not give up ground easily. And there are two particular camps represented in John chapter 11. And these two... These two camps, they don't go by these names anymore, but they go by the same methods. Let me tell you something. The devil is not creative. He is just persistent. And Rebecca, I will remember that note you gave me. I remembered it earlier, and you gave it to me now, but I don't want to stop my... So after I'm done with the sermon, you, you wave at me, and I'll remember it. That's a 56-year-old ADD right there. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees and the Sadducees opposed Jesus. The Jewish authorities opposed Jesus. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees are very different. The Pharisees, they're the religious ones. They're the holy ones. They are so committed to God, they want to follow every law, jot and tittle. Not just the laws recorded in the Bible, but the thousands upon thousands of laws that they wrote to interpret those laws. And it got to be so ludicrous that you were not to work on the Sabbath, you couldn't even have a brooch or a pin on your garment. Because if you did, that would mean you were carrying something and therefore you were working on the Sabbath. There was one group of Pharisees that were called the blind and the bruised. 
because as to not lust, they would close their eyes whenever they saw a woman unveiled. However, they wouldn't stop walking. Thus the name, the blind and the bruised. And, and, and Phariseeism is always the temptation of people whose hearts want God. But the problem is, we take it into our own hands, and we believe that we can get God by rules and regulations, and we forego relationship. Now, you might think, well, that's commendable. No, it's not. Because when we start doing rules and regulations, we put ourselves in control. And, and rules and regulations then put God in our debt. Here's how it works. How many, have, how many have thought this and prayed this? God, if I'm really, really good, and I, you know, I don't drink this week, or I don't smoke, or I don't chew, or I don't go with girls that do, if I behave myself, then you're going to do some good things for me. You're going to give me that job I want. I'm going to get that new car. My kids are going to stop messing up. So God, I'm going I'm to tweak you in such a way that you have to give me what I want by following some arbitrary set of rules that I think you have established. And here's what we do when we become Pharisees. We always focus on the rules that are easy for us to follow and condemn the ones that are, that are, that, uh, or condemn others who don't follow them, and we ignore the ones that are hard for us to follow. Okay, gambling. I, I've struggled with everything in my life. Listen, you can come to me and tell me your struggles. I will not be shocked. I have, I have literally been tempted or gone down the path of everything, but, but uh, only three things I know of. Compulsive exercise, never been a problem for me. <laughs> never seen a smiling jogger. I'm just not one of those people who's just like, man, I just got to, you know, it's, compulsive exercise, never been a problem for me. Workaholism has never been a problem for me. You know, I can, I can shut it down. And gambling. Gambling's not a problem for me. I get it. I, I walk in, I walk, if I walk into a casino and I see all the chandeliers and all the lighters, why, why, why is that all that opulence there? Because they win. They win. You do this long enough, they'll take your money. You can't beat them. Unless you can car count cards, then they'll break your arms, you know, or at least in the old days they would. You know, they, they win. They win. I used to think I was pretty smart on sports. I thought, oh, I could, no, I can't beat those sports bookies in Vegas. They, they're smarter than me. I hate to admit that, but they are. So I've never been tempted to gambling. So my wife and I walk into Harris in North Tahoe, and I see these people gambling. They're doing the, they're doing the, the four-step dance. Cigarette, drink. This is back when you put coins in. Coin, pull. So it's like this. <laughs> They're just moving it. It's the rhythm. I'm seeing it all around. I'm looking at these people. It makes no sense to me. So what do I do? The little Pharisee rises up in me and condemns these people in my heart. Look how stupid they are, giving their money to the mob. Right? So I start singing a song in the, in the casino. I just make up a song. This is a little prophetic song, Dan. Give your money to the poor. Give your money to the poor. You'll be so much happier if you stop drinking and smoking and give your money to the poor. Joe's like, shh, Kevin, quiet, quiet. They're going to kick us out, quiet. You're embarrassing me. And, of course, when she says that, I, I bring it up, I take it. Give your money to the poor. 
because the temptation to embarrass my wife in public is strong in me. <laughs> but there's a reason we're in Harrah's, and it's not to gamble. It's to get on the elevator and go to the 17th floor where they have the all-you-can-eat buffet. Gluttony's not a sin. All you can eat. That's their gamble. That's the one gamble I think I can win. They're gambling that they can make money on me, and I'm betting they can't. I'm betting they can't. And so the Pharisee in us, we look at other people's, oh, that's terrible. That's terrible. And, and we become light on the things that we struggle with. And so Phariseeism... It brings rules over race, relationship. And then it uses God to try to control people. Um, one of the reasons people are down on church, I get it. I get it. People like me, leaders, pastors, they, they have an agenda, and they use people to accomplish their agenda. That is not the job of pastors and church leaders. The job of pastors and church leaders is to serve people that God might accomplish his agenda through them. But people got egos, and they use people, and they try to control people. And, and, and man, very few things in life are as, good, as control, good at controlling people as God, right? If you can get people convinced that if you do this, God's going to be on your side. If you do what I say, God's going to be on your side. And so you, Phariseeism uses God to control people. It is the clear definition of taking the Lord's name in vain. That's not just cussing on the golf course. Don't do that either. Listen, Jesus did not hit that hook. Don't blame him. And don't damn your golf ball to hell because it went in the water. Yeah. However, taking the Lord's name in vain is just misusing God's name, using God for your own agenda. And Phariseeism does that. And then Phariseeism creates religious pride. I'm better than you. Holier than thou. I would never. The, tent, the, the tongue click and the eyes rolled. And listen, it happens in renewal churches too. What am I talking about renewal churches? You know, we believe in that healing stuff and we have people shake and fall and all that stuff. And here's, here's the temptation with all that. And we prophesy and believe all that supernatural stuff. And here's the temptation with that. I, I'm into all that, man. Get as nutty as we can be. I'm, I'm good. I'm good with that. I was there, Nick. That was a nutty service, but you got your heart healed. If it takes a nutty service to get somebody healed, I'm good. I'm down. But here's the danger. We are the tip of the arrow of God's move on the earth. We are the front of the tsunami of revival. Now, there's nothing wrong with believing you're a part of what God's doing on earth. We ought to believe that. But included in that is those others, the Presbyterians, the Lutherans, the Catholics. Oh, they're... Yeah, they don't get it. The seeker churches. Oh, I know they have bigger numbers than us. But they're not as committed. We don't know that. We don't know anything. Why not just play the role that God has called you to play and let other people play the role that God has called them to play and stop keeping score? Phariseeism always keeps score religiously. I fast more than you. I pray longer. If you want to get to my level, spiritually, no thank you. No thank you. 
So, the way to avoid Phariseeism is it's all about relationship. It's all about relationship. It's never about the rules. Jesus will keep you humble. And if not, he will give you a wife. All right, Sadducees. The Sadducees were the chief priests. They were the leaders. They didn't believe. They weren't even believers. They were, they, the Pharisees, the closest thing I could say to Pharisees, the temptation, evangelical Christians can be Pharisees, of which I include myself. Sadducees are the liberal Christians in the mainline denominations. They run things. They run the church. They just don't believe. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They believed that everything happened happened in this life. That's, that's how I always remember who the Sadducees are. They didn't believe in life after death, so they were sad, you see. <laughs> they had the privileged position. They were the bishops. They wore the robes. They were the chief priests. They made up the council. They were the ones... These little people, these stupid little Jews and these religious zealot Pharisees, they don't know how to make the wheels work with the Romans. We're actually protecting them because we grease the skids. We know how to make things work with the Romans. We know how to work the system. We know when bribes are necessary. We know how to manipulate. We know how to use intrigue. How many have seen, like, uh, sometimes they'll have a mini-series about the church, and so, oftentimes it's about the Catholic church because they're, 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 they're the most fun, I think, to pick on because they've been around the longest. And, you know, they'll show, like, the intrigue of the Vatican and people vying for who gets to be the next pope, and there's all this... All this you know, political stuff going, anybody even know what I'm talking about? Right? I was a part of a mainline church, and I remember when we elected bishops. It was just, it was just flat-out political campaigning. It's like, when, they, when, they, when Paul and Barnabas were set apart to, do, to be missionaries, it was through the prophetic word of God established by a church fasting and praying. But not anymore. We vote. Do you know there's never a vote taken in the Bible? One time, there's a kind of an opinion poll taken. Paul says, don't get on the boat. <coughs> it's going to crash. He's outvoted. A few other people say, no, we'll get on the boat. And what happens? There's a, there's, a, there's a wreck. All right? So the only time there's a vote in the Bible, it leads to a, a shipwreck. Last two churches I've been a pastor of, we have a leadership team. We don't do things by vote. We do things by consensus. If everybody says yes, it's good. If one person says no, we wait. If they say no long enough, we kick them off the leadership. No, we just we wait and pray. We pray and wait. The political spirit at all costs maintain power and privileged position. You see, the Sadducees, we don't care if Jesus... What, what, what's their reasoning? Wait a minute. If this man keeps doing signs and wonders... The Romans are going to get involved, and we're going to lose what? Our position. They don't care if dead people are getting raised. Which, by the way, the Pharisees didn't want to lose their position either, because they were the religious big deals, and now Jesus is stealing their show, right? The Sadducees, we don't want to lose our wealth. Listen, dear ones, always be cautious of small people with lots of power. That's what the Sadducees are. They're big fish in a little bowl. The Romans had the real power by worldly and political standards. They had the army, and they were ruthless in their execution of people who worked against them. But the Sadducees had a nice niche. 
they had wealth, position, as long as they could keep the Romans happy and keep the Jews from raising too much of a stir to keep the Romans up, they had a nice life going. And now you've got this guy, Jesus. Well, yeah, he raises people from the dead, which we don't even believe, but he's stirring the pot. Let me tell you something. Christians, we can be way too political. And I don't mean, we live in a great country where we have the opportunity to vote and to express our opinions, and we should do that. But never, ever, ever put your hope in politics. Our hope is in God. And, and at, at, at its basis nature, politics will, see, will always try to do one or two things to the church. Either it will violently oppress the church to stamp it out, as it does in, in, in some instances. But where that doesn't happen, I guarantee you, politics will always try to co-opt the church. Come to us, and we'll give you what you want. But you have to give us what we want. And pretty soon, it's the price of your soul. You understand? And so, cast your vote. Vote your conscience. And if you're called to get in politics, I'm not arguing against that. But don't lose your soul in the process. Don't sell out to the position. Don't sell out to expediency. The political spirit is always about maintaining the status quo or increasing my favor within the status quo. And it will use people to do so. Sometimes it will be subtle manipulation. Sometimes it will be intimidation, intrigue, whatever it is. Whatever it is, it is the political spirit. That's why Jesus says earlier in the Gospels, beware of the, beware of the leaven of what? The Pharisees and the Sadducees. And two things throughout history the church has been tempted to because we want power. Listen, power is not evil. Just like money is not evil. Power raised Lazarus from the dead. Money feeds a lot of hungry people all over the world. I told somebody the other day, they... they, they, they uh, they came to me on Tuesday or Monday night. They said, oh, I forgot to bring my tithe check on Sunday. Will you still take it, Pastor? <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Too late for you. <laughs> of course I'll take it. And a late fee. <laughs> but those things are all power, money. They're always meant to serve. And when they, when they take an elevated position, they get dirty. They get dirty. So, the father. Here's what I love about this story. The high priest, Caiaphas, who is evil in this story, he's basically saying, we've got to kill Jesus to maintain the status quo. In so doing, God uses him to prophesy the truth. That yes, Jesus will die for the nation and the sins of the world. One man will die for the people. And so God gets his way. Dear ones, be encouraged. God wins. 
in the direst of circumstances. The Pharisees are against Jesus. The Sadducees are against Jesus. The Romans don't care about Jesus. The only people who believe in Jesus are the poor and the powerless and the weak and the insignificant. And these powers come together, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Romans, and they conspire together and they nail the one good man who's ever lived on the planet on a cruel piece of wood on a cross, and he bleeds out his last and he dies. And it seems like the bad guys win again. But the Father in heaven says, no, Caiaphas said it, and it's true. One man is going to die for the world. But guess what? Three days later, bum, 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 he's up. He's up. And all history has been changed. And in fact, the very thing Caiaphas was trying to preserve was lost in 70 AD, just a short, within a generation of Jesus, as Jesus prophesied. Rome was destroyed by the Romans. The priesthood was lost forever. Gone. Caiaphas's descendants destroyed. Everything he was trying to preserve with his political intrigue and power were destroyed. And the Jesus that he had crucified 2,000 years later is still believed in and exalted in houses like this and all over the world. I've been, yeah, good, good, good for you. You, ought to, you know what? We're a kind of charismatic church. I don't know. We ought to whoop it up for that. You know, yeah, we ought to just say hey, hallelujah. 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 I've been meditating just a lot lately on Romans 8.28. You know it. God causes all things to work for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. It doesn't say God causes all things. He doesn't. I... I I'm not one of those people that believes, you know, oh, God gave Aunt Sally cancer for a purpose. No, cancer is from the pit of hell. I hate cancer. And heart disease and diabetes and child deformity and hate it all. God doesn't cause all things. He doesn't cause drunk drivers on prom night to kill people before their day, before their time. God doesn't cause those things. But he does say he causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. He doesn't say he causes all things to work for the good to everybody. There are those who reject him, who won't have anything to do with him. You're on your own. Good luck. You need it. Some people are like, why did God do this to me? First of all, God didn't do it to you, but if you want God to turn it to good, join his team. Didn't look like a good day for Jesus hanging on the cross, but it's been good ever since. His, of the increase of his kingdom and his government, there, is, there has been no end, and there will not be an end. So God doesn't cause all things, and he doesn't cause all things to work to good for everybody, but for those who love him who are called and live life according to his purpose. And the third thing is he doesn't say he causes all things to work for good right away. Jesus died on Friday, but he rose on Sunday. There was Saturday in between. Listen, dear ones, you're going to be a Christian? I got news for you. There are going to be seasons in your life where the word of the Lord is wait. But waiting is not passive. Those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They'll walk and not faint. And so you wait, and you pray, and you grow. And it's like lifting weights, Glenn. You're, you're building muscle all the time. 
for the purpose that God has for you as you wait. You don't wait passively. You wait in the gym, in the spiritual gym. That's a good place to be. And God causes things to work for good. I have story after story in my life. I remember uh, when I was a Methodist, as, as an associate pastor, and uh, I so wanted to be a senior pastor. I just wanted to preach. And uh, we had three services, a big church, we had three services. The senior pastor, I said, I got I to gotta tell the bishop. And in that system, you didn't, the bishop would send you. You had to go where the bishop sent you. So I, I, I told my district superintendent, the representative of the bishop, I wanted, I wanted out. Not because I didn't like the church I was at. I loved the church I was at. I loved the senior pastor. But I just wanted to preach. He asked me one time, he said, what would it take, Kevin, for me to get you to stay? I said, give me the 8 o'clock service. And he said, no, I can't do that. I'll split the church. I said, okay, I get you. And so I just wanted to go. And, and, and so my district superintendent, my third year there, said, we get, we'll get a church for you. I waited by the phone, I waited by the phone, I waited by the phone. No church. I have to wait another year. I was so frustrated. I had, I had five years worth of sermon notes waiting to go. The next year, I go, ah, get me a di- different district superintendent. I need a, oh yeah, we, we, we let you down last year, Kim. We got a church for you this year. I wait, I, I give them a list of churches that I know are open. I say, I'll, I'll work in any one of these. Or any one you want, but these are... And they looked at it and said, well, this, this and this, this might be a fit. This one might not be, you know, but they, you know, oh, yeah, we, we got you covered. I waited, I waited, I waited. I called him. He got mad at me because I called him. Why are you calling me? Because you say you're going to be at church. Well, I don't have one for you right yet. We're working on it. One of my best friends called John Mott. And John Mott said, Kevin, they're sending me from LaGrange to Atwater. John Mott didn't want to leave LaGrange. I don't know why he didn't want to leave LaGrange, but he didn't. And he was going to Atwater. Atwater was one of the churches on my list. I wanted to go. But they, they took John and sent him from LaGrange to Atwater, and I stayed. And after John gave me that call, I knew I wasn't going to get a church that year. I just, I got mad at God, and I, I started doing the, why, God? You know, the whining of God. I opened up a book I was studying at the time, and it was a devotional book, and it opened up to the passage in Job where God says, who are you to question me? Gird up your loins, and I will speak to you. It's like, it's all it took, man. I was on the floor. Okay, God, okay, I'll stay, I'll stay. My loins are girded, whatever that means. <laughs> I'm good. But the next year, a friend of mine left the church in Oakdale, California, that was the best fit for me. And I ended up going there. And then God did a wonderful work there, not only at that church, but then started another church and a whole other movement out of that in Living Hope Christian Fellowship. And it was a great season in our lives. And I realized in the process, Romans 8, 28, God causes all things to work for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. And not only that, but my last year as associate pastor at that Methodist church far and away was my best and most fruitful year. And things got established, and I was able to do things that I hadn't done before. It was so, much, it was so good. And so, dear ones, I want to encourage you. God is not a parent who spoils you, and if you stamp your foot and wag your finger, he's going to give you everything you demand right now. But he is a good father. 
And as you place yourself in relationship with him through his son Jesus, life is hard. Life will, life will not stop getting hard. I wish it would. I vote for that. I vote for life to stop being hard. But not on this rock. It'll be hard. But I have found that he is faithful. That the father wins. And that he causes all things to work for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Even dear ones in death. I was talking to a couple guys the other day and we were talking about growing older. The guy says, well, growing older beats the alternative. And I thought, yeah, not really. Not really. But I'll grow older as long as God wants me to. I'll grow older as long as he wants me to. And I've put in my request. I want to be around to see the greatest revival and the greatest move of God in the history of this nation. And I want to be right in the middle of it. I don't know if that's going to happen. But I'm, I'm hanging in there for it. I'm hanging in there for it. Why don't you tell me that's going to happen, Dan? All right, good. This week, I want to ask you to fast and pray. We've been looking for a place for this church to meet and, and to get a 24-7 place for us to meet. Uh, we've been looking for over half a year, and we've had offers turned down. I get real people never call me back. I call, you know, I see signs. I call them, you know, call them three or four times. I don't get called. so. I want you to take a day, if you will, and just fast. And if, if you're not used to fasting, take a meal. If that's too much for you, leave out a favorite food. Not to not to be a Pharisee. Not to put God in your see God. See what I'm doing? I'm not eating. So you better give me what I want. No, 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 no. No, when you fast, it draws your attention, right? It's like, oh, I'm hungry. Oh, that's right. I'm hungry for a reason. God, I want to pray. I want to ask for heaven to invade earth. And pray for spiritual breakthrough. Not just here in the firehouse, but in this region. I, I, I sing that song. Um, see, I'm very aware that God is moving all over the world in great ways. And I'm very excited about it. I'm also very aware that the church in the United States, and particularly in the Pacific Northwest, is at one of its lowest points in a long time. I'm aware of a third thing, that oftentimes when that happens, that is a predecessor to people getting desperate and praying and God pouring out revival. Think of the late 60s. Everybody, oh, the late 60s, people are smoking drugs, things are going crazy. And what? all of a sudden you have all these hippies, what? Coming at the Jesus movement, right? All these hippies. How many of you are part of the Jesus? How many of you were... Long-haired, hippie, Jesus-loving, Jesus freaks, you know? This whole thing. And God's, God does that. And so just... Fa you were the mullet movement. <laughs> All right, so I just want to ask you to fast and pray. The other thing I want to... If you need prayer this morning, please come on up and we'll pray for you. And as always, I want to ask you if you could help us uh, uh, tear down. Um, um, we're, we're a little low this morning. Some of our families are out of town, so... We've got a few less people here to help. So if you could stick around and help us uh, pull. We don't have quite as much stuff to put up because we didn't have the drums this morning. So if you could help us help the Sunday school and this and get us squared away, we'd appreciate it. So the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Go in that peace to love and serve the Lord. And God's people said, amen. If you need prayer, we'll be right over here. God bless. Oh, Dan, do you have anything to say on that?